Bam 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 Welcome back, everyone, to Go Help Yourself, a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less. I'm sitting across from Lisa Linky. I'm sitting across from Misty Sinnott. We're sitting across from each other. And <laughs> if you are joining us, welcome for the first time. This is going to be an interesting episode to hop in on yeah. because— It's a part two. It's a part two. Every now and then, we come across a book that's so rich with information. So meaty. So meaty. And juicy. And juicy. It's got to have a sequel. That's right. <laughs> a juicy sequel, just dripping with information. And so um, this is the podcast where we read and review a popular self-help book, and we give you the ins and outs, highs and lows. You get it. We're not going to give you the full spiel because this is a part two episode. We really encourage you um, to listen to last week's episode. We are reading The, the Upside, Upside of, of Your, your dark, dark Side by Todd Cashden, Cashden and Robert Biswas-Diener. Um, whom Lisa went to high school with. I did. Which I went to high school with him. Amazing. I know. I'm very proud of him. I know. Okay. So we left off with the idea of wholeness versus happiness. And um, we talked about how the rise of the comfortable class has actually increased, increased anxiety. anxiety. So, mm-hmm. so in, in the takeaways of the chapters we've covered so far, which are really just the first two chapters because there's so much yep. set up um, and rich psychology here, is that no emotions are negative. Yeah. Right? They all have a purpose. They're all useful. Right. And um, that emotional resilience is something that has kind of gone away as comfort has increased. That's right. Right? So now we're going to jump into chapter three. What's so good about feeling bad? What is so good about feeling bad? I am going to read a section from page 55. Negativity is our evolutionary birthright. To that I said, do you know me? I feel seen for the first time. (laughs) Negative (laughs) evaluations are essential to survival. That bitter leaf is also poisonous, for example. And nowhere is this more true than in negative emotions. Emotions Mm. serve as a tracking system for experience and provide a quick mental thumbs up or down that signals you to approach or avoid any given situation. Holy shit. Yeah. So um, we avoid negative emotions for four reasons. Reasons. (laughs) I'm here. One, they are unpleasant. Yeah. Two, they represent getting stuck in a rut. Ow, I'm stuck. Three, they are associated with a loss of personal control. Why? Four, they are perceived correctly as having social costs. Fuck you guys. They are unpleasant. Remember our emotional time travel errors? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which are that we uh, overestimate the positive effects of something and underestimate how bad it'll make us feel. Basically, we choose wrong about how we're going to feel. <laughs> That's We do that on every choice. Yeah, and the example of the last book was buying that brand new house. You think you're going to feel great, but you underestimated how shitty your extra 30 minutes of commuting would be. Um, We make mistakes not in our desire to avoid the unpleasant, but rather in underestimating their ability to adequately tolerate the distress of negative emotions. Okay. Um, Emotions, all emotions, are information. You want to feel the prickle of fear when in danger. You want to feel the thrust of anger when you need to protect your children. Yes. You want to feel frustration when you don't progress. You want to feel regret when you say something hurtful. Because they're all useful. Yeah. For reevaluating your own situation. Yeah. And, yeah. F- you know, so regret when you say something hurtful helps keep you socially in the pack. Yeah. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? And yeah. then protecting your kids. You want to yeah. feel anger. Yes. Yeah. Um, there's a tour of three dreaded emotions, anger, guilt and shame, and anxiety. It's really great. 
Mm-hmm. I love how they kind of break each one down and give you some examples. And I thought that was super, super helpful. So I'm going to read a little bit on page 68, which is from the Tour of Three Dreaded Emotions. Awesome. Anger in itself is neither good nor bad. It's what you do with it that matters. That's like Shakespeare. Uh-huh. Uh, research suggests that only 10% of angry episodes actually lead to some form of violence, which mm-hmm. is evidence that anger does not exactly equal aggression. Mm-hmm. Anger usually arises because we believe we've been treated unfairly or that something is blocking our ability to accomplish meaningful goals. Mm -hmm. In our data, we coded 3,679 days when people reported feeling angry in everyday life. We discovered that 63.3% of those episodes were blamed on other people as opposed to, let's say, on a computer keyboard. Right. Anger is typically caused by what other people did, didn't do, or might possibly do. Anger is a tool that helps us read and respond to upsetting social situations. Mm -hmm. As for its benefits, research overwhelmingly indicates that feeling angry increases optimism, creativity, and effective performance. Wait, what? And that expressing anger leads to more successful negotiations and a fast track for mobilizing people into agents of change. What? Uh Uh-huh. So. Anger increases creativity and optimism? It's true. How? Each of these has has a research, has a study associated with it, and they're fascinating to read. Oh, my God. I was a psychology minor, and so you always had to do your, um, participate in studies, and it's just fascinating to think about how scientists, uh, research scientists and psychologists set up studies to test a theory. Oh, my God. Um, So. There's a lot in this subsection uh, of the and and in this subsection of the subsection of this With chapter. With all of those studies, so right, so we're in the subsection of a tour of three dreaded emotions in what's so good about feeling bad. Okay, and then we're in the subsection of anger in that subsection, right? Okay, so um. I'm going to leave a lot of that up for you to investigate because it's fascinating with the studies, but I'm just going to take the takeaways from anger. There is a right way to get angry, they say, in terms of making it useful. What is that? Number one, make a discomfort caveat. And you and I love a caveat. Let other people know that you're experiencing intense emotions. Apologize in advance, not for your emotion, but for your lack of clarity on how you convey what you're about to say. And I have an example of this after I had been in therapy and group therapy for a while. And I was at um, a theater that I was involved with, and um, I was kind of organizing a team that had been performing for a very long time. And we were made up of different members of this improv theater. And I was called in to have a meeting and the president of the theater was telling me that people were unhappy because we weren't we were being too exclusive. And I started to get angry and thank God I had done enough work because I said, you know what, I'm going to stop you because I'm getting angry in this moment. And here's why. We have repeatedly invited members to come to this show. They are no shows. They have been very disrespectful. So we stopped inviting them. Yeah. So the fact that you're telling me that we're now looked upon terribly means nothing to me. And it makes me angry. Oh. And it was... They were like, oh, okay. You know what I mean? Like, I was able to, and I wasn't yelling. I was just saying, hey, this is, my boundaries were being encroached, right? Yes, yes. So there's a study, people who hid their anger got bronchitis, had more heart attacks, and were more likely to die earlier than people and their peers who let their anger be known. And by let their anger be known, do they mean to the angering party or just like among support systems? I don't know. that Because I don't think you want to necessarily go to... Like if your boss is making you angry. Well, I think if if you make this discomfort caveat, if you say, I want to apologize, I'm experiencing some intense feelings right now. So if I don't say it as clear as I could, please forgive me. But here's what I'm thinking. Hmm. Then that you've acknowledged your anger. 
Mm. in a way that's productive and lets the person, you're not on the hook for how you're saying it. Hmm. And then the second thing they say is to slow things down. Okay. So we want to just speed it up when we get mad and talk. Mm -hmm. And the best thing to do is just slow things down. Mm -hmm. Great. The second is guilt and shame. When you feel guilty, you're more motivated to improve your behavior than your less guilt-prone peers. Okay. Guilt adds to moral fiber. Adults prone to feeling guilty are less likely to drive drunk, steal, and use illegal drugs. Whoa. Um, there's a great chart on page 83 about how guilt is different from shame. They like to say that guilt is local and shame is global. So, for example, uh, what is shame? Focus on the entire self. And what is guilt? Focus on the victim and the act that harmed them. Shame is I feel bad about who we are. Guilt is I feel bad about what we did. Ah, okay. That's, shame that's is helpful. how could I have done that? Guilt is how could I have done that versus oh, how could I, I have, have done, done that, that right? Wow. Um, shame, feel extreme distress and impairment. Guilt, feel moderate pain. Shame, believe in no control over adverse outcomes. Guilt, believe in personal control over adverse outcomes. Okay. Shame is desire to shrink, avoid escape. Guilt, feel tension and remorse. There's okay. a couple more, but I thought this was a nice distinguishing. Um, no, that's great. Breaking it up a little bit, even more than Brene did, I felt. Like, yeah, and, mm-hmm. that's really helpful. And I, what happens if you just feel no guilt or shame about anything? Well, I think you're a sociopath. Oh, great. There's a study about shame and sobriety. Over the course of four months, newly sober adults who showed no shame during an interview, asking them how much they've been drinking, reported 7.91 drinks. Wow. Those who showed the greatest shame, the top 10%, on average in, during the same period, how many drinks do you think they consumed? More or less? Less. They consumed 117.89 drinks. Oh, my God. So remember, guilt, uh, when you feel guilty, you're more motivated to improve your behavior. But shame is just like, this is who I am, so I can't help it. Yes. Versus guilt is I have control. Yes. Okay. Okay. So escape the shame trap. Keep the goal in mind. Establish common ground between two people and offer autonomy. That's how you can get rid. So remember, this is when I think it's used... uh, for, for business. Yeah. Focus okay. Business. Yeah. I was going to mm-hmm. say, like, I don't know how that works if it's you versus alcohol, That's you right. know? So anxiety. When we experience too much anxiety too often, we age prematurely. <laughs> Any of you doing that face app knows exactly what's happening. <laughs> but the surprising, surprising truth about anxiety is this. In some situations, you want to be highly anxious. Like? You need an anxious person on your team, and without anxiety, small problems can easily end up morphing into disaster. Uh. Anxiousness is the canary in the coal mine. In the coal mine. Yes. So on page 90, they talk about, and again, this is about the work, the workplace. So um, uh, here we go. The five S's. When we're anxious, we serve the same function as canaries in the mine shaft. We're sentinels, helping other people by reacting quickly and vocally to early potential signs of danger. Mm-hmm. This works according to the five S's. Scare. Anxious people are on high alert for any slight shift in their environment. They are therefore extremely attentive to potential problems that might arise, especially in unfamiliar or ambiguous, ambiguous situations. Startle. Anxious people react quickly and strongly to the slightest cues that danger may be present. Share. Anxious people are quick to warn others about looming danger. Mm. Scout. If others are not immediately supportive, anxious people go into investigative mode and seek more data. Squat. <laughs> anxious people suppress other important needs such as eating and sleeping to, perse- to perseverate, perse- perseverate on the problem until it is resolved. 
So that's oh how God. anxiety can help you, and you need an anxious person on your so team. So this should be called the upside of your dark side, a letter, a, a love letter to your negative emotions. <laughs> yes. So those are the two of the three dreaded emotions in chapter three. Okay. Now we're going to talk about chapter four, okay. how positive emotions can lead to your downfall. Okay. Um, defining happiness. At some level, it's a feeling, but it's not to be conflated with potential causes of happiness. Like when people say happiness is family or happiness is friendship. That's a cause of happiness. Okay. Not not what happiness yeah, is. Yeah, what is the fucking state of happiness? Thank you. The absence of stress? What is it? I don't know, right? There's that's what uh, that's what there's a whole <laughs> positive psychology and the whole you know se- sections of philosophy well, to define it. Our Aristotle started it. it. Well, it's also very interesting because in reading, um, oh my God, which one was it? There's uh, one of the financial books, right? It's like your money or your life, rich dad, poor dad, a total money makeover, like. V- that was the first time anybody said, define what rich means to you. Yeah. Like We all walk around being like, I want to be rich. And it's like, well, right. what does that mean? Is that eating gourmet meals anytime you want? Is that right. traveling first class? Right. Is that owning 4,000 pairs of shoes? Like, right. what does that mean? So it's interesting that I've never sat down and been like, what, what does happiness, does happiness mean, to, mean me? to me? Interesting. Do well, they define it in this book? They don't. Okay. There's plenty of research saying positive effects of uh, positivity, like increased positive behavior, health, et cetera. But mm-hmm. the contrast effect, the experience of emotional highs makes other good events shine less brightly. And the carryover effect, you mentally amplify positive and negative experiences. So the contrast effect is like, oh my God, we had such a great day. And then like another good thing happens, but it wasn't as great as that. Yeah. yeah. And then the carryover effect is like, Something good, uh, something good happened, and it kind of makes other things that aren't as great still okay. Okay, right? Like I had, I got a promotion, then I had a ticket on my car, but that was okay. But that doesn't matter because, right? Yeah. Or conversely, I got a ticket on my car, and then somebody bought me a drink, but I still got a fucking ticket on my car. Huh. Mm-hmm. So, research finding number one: your happiness can interfere with your success. Happiness slash positivity can lead to a superficial processing style. Happy people are less persuasive, they can be too trusting, and they're lazy thinkers. And there's Holy a real-world application on page 104 this that I want to share with you. This makes me think of why writers in Hollywood are so successful. Right? <laughs> they're all anxious and mad yes, it is. and unhappy. So here we go. Here is the um, real-world application. You might be asking, how does this work? Should I be trying to make myself sad before work? We are not suggesting that you meditate (laughs) on the suffering of victims of natural disasters to make yourself sad. We are suggesting instead that you honor the emotions that arise in you naturally at key decision points. Thank you. When people are unsure whether someone is telling the truth, concerned about somebody's trustworthiness, or in the midst of evaluating someone, they are rarely in a flat-out happy mood. During these decision points, people often feel somber, even emotionally conflicted until the decision-making is over. Just know that this state of mind is perfect for the task. Oh, my God. Don't focus on the short game by trying to boost your mood. Instead, focus on the long game and pay attention to the making good decisions instead of just feeling good. So for each of those things that happy people are lazy thinkers, happy people do this, they have mm-hmm. a huge section on um, research and studies that, that show this, and it's fascinating. Oh, my God. Okay, research finding number two. So the first one is your happiness can interfere with your success. Research finding number two, pursuit of happiness can backfire, ending in unhappiness. Uh Mm Uh-huh. Go on. When you enter into a situation with the goal of becoming happier, you actually make that less likely to occur. Oh, fuck. And context matters here for sure. But 
Um, let's see. People who tried to use, so they had a study of people using music and they gave them directions like, listen to this and try to be happy or stuff. Um, so it says, uh, people who tried to use the music to become happier while also tracking how well they met their happiness goal felt 7.5 times worse than people who just listened to the music. Oh, God. This finding is important because conventional wisdom regarding the pursuit of happiness tells us that people should understand what brings them happiness, create goals that will help with this overarching aim to be happy, and then work towards these goals, tracking the effort put in and progress made. You were just asking, like, what, how do I define happiness? Well, also, like, your money or your life was, like, straight up make a wall chart, track every Everything every month for the rest of your life. Well, now listen to this. We now have scientific evidence suggesting that the single-minded pursuit of happiness is akin to trying trying to grab a bar of soap in the bathtub. The more you reach through the water, the more the soap slips away, and the more difficult it is to uh, lay a hand on. This makes sense because that single-minded aim to be happy above all else is a selfish pursuit. It's about feeling good and having positive thoughts. The notion that other people matter is a secondary concern, which can interfere with the quality of one's relationships. Mm. <laughs> Listen, God this is just one it. other take on how it. How are one you other ever supposed to it. get the soap? So how do you ever get the soap? <laughs> Tell me how to get the goddamn soap, Lisa. You stop reaching for it and it just falls in your hand? Use a washcloth? I don't God know. Here we go. It. Research finding number three. Sometimes people want to feel bad. Hell yes. Mm -hmm. Certain situations call for feelings and behaviors that deviate from the happiness shtick. Anger trumps happiness when trying to confront a wrongdoer. Mm -hmm. Anxiety trumps happiness when taking precautions against looming danger. Yeah. And sadness trumps happiness when securing help to handle loss or personal difficulties. Yeah. Right? If you need somebody to help you when you're handling loss and you go in with a happiness, people are going to be like, it feels yeah. weird and they're not yes. going to help you. Research finding number four. Someone else's happiness can impair your performance too. We have common biases that interfere with our happiness. We're terrible at predicting our future states. This is projection bias. Or we did a poor job overestimating the emotional intensity of an event or its duration. That's called impact bias. Mm -hmm. I do that all the time. Moving to L.A. won't be hard. Mm -hmm. I'm terrible at this. Or I'm dreading this meeting yes. or whatever, yes. and then it's fine. Your mental state is different from one time to another. This is distinction bias. There's all these kind of biases. Oh my God. The most toxic bias to decision-making where happiness is concerned is wanting and liking bias. So this is page 118. And this Wanting one, and liking bias? Mm -hmm, wanting versus liking bias. Oh. So okay. the single most toxic decision-making bias where happiness is concerned is the wanting slash liking bias. When people, when most people hear about this, they are shocked that they have gone their entire lives without having clearly understood it. This bias is based on the distinction between wanting something and mm -hmm. liking something. You might want a pet dog, for instance, far more than you would actually like having a pet dog. Oh, shit. Neuroscience research supports this idea that these are two separate psychological processes. Wanting, which is an appetite, is associated with one region of the brain, whereas enjoyment or liking is associated with another. So they've identified that wanting and liking involve two separate but related systems in the brain. <laughs> Missy's eyes are so wide. I, what? What? Is this like every time I'm like, yes, I want to eat the whole container of pad to you yeah. versus I, I don't like. Well, I would say you would order the, you would order being like, I'm going to eat this. I'm going to eat this. Right. But then when you're eating it, you're like. This Why did terrible. I do? It's like the burger I ate in the car on the way here. Also, I just have to say, I feel like my breath is terrible. Is my? Do you smell? I cannot smell anything okay, at all. Thank you. Um, okay. But when we were making out earlier, I had a, a moment. 
Well, I wish you would have said something. I, well, it's fine. Misty, please put yourself first. Please Thank set you. the boundaries. Thank you. Chapter five, Beyond the Obsession with Mindfulness. Mindfulness. They're like, but what about mindfulness? This yeah. whole thing yes. about mindfulness. Yes. They're sa- they say, our brain simply can't handle the complex, dynamic layers of information coming in at every moment. Great. So much goes into tiny interactions. They're like, just thinking about passing somebody on the street, the thousands of pieces of information yes. and decisions that your brain processes. Yes. Are they threatening me? Is this someone do I, I like? Person? Do I need do to I say need hi? To do, do I need I to smile? Space? Are we going to yes. bump into them? Yes. Jeez. They say we have to be mindless to do it or we'd be overwhelmed. We're uncomfortable with the word mindless, but the authors talk about three types of mindlessness that help success and well-being. <laughs> what are they? Harnessing the autopilot. Yep. Taking impulsive action, impulsive action, excuse me, and trusting mindless decision making. Okay. This chapter is fascinating. I recommend a read. There's so much detail and research backing it, and it's just fucking brilliant. What if you could sum it up in a sentence? Well, basically that you they that this idea of that we need to be present in every moment is not physically possible for our brains. It's not, and I keep judging myself for not being super fucking present in every moment. And that they say that this mindless state is mm-hmm. actually where a lot of these processes and, and judgments and choices and decisions are made, and it's useful. Wow. In fact, that's probably going to be your homework, is okay. engaging in a step-by-step process to make a decision using some mindless time. Great. Yeah. Um, okay, so focus on one thing, a, counteract, a counterintuitive rule of thumb. This is it. This is your homework. Great. When complex decisions are required, after gathering some conscious information— Uh-huh. Avoid thinking about it consciously. Uh-huh. Take some time and let the unconscious deal with the choice. So the structure as it is is on one, page 147, which I'll mm-hmm. read here. Mm-hmm. And this is will be totally different from your assignment from Aristotle's way, which was a very deliberate yes. process for well, making that a, a choice. A 12-step process. So here's what they say. Um, and they're also like, there are so many books on mindfulness and irrational thinking, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we're still learning how to function optimally as fully integrated whole people. This fascinating line of research shows us that the most efficient and effective strategy for handling complex decisions is to flexibly use conscious and unconscious thinking Mm. in tandem and in that order. In a cognitively demanding situation with a large number of options, the formula for optimal decision-making looks like this. One, spend a small amount of time mindfully contemplating the situation. Two, stop. Three, skip over to another unrelated activity for an incubation period. Four, render a decision. Wow. So you might like do a crossword puzzle or garden. Paint mm-hmm. or something. But it you sounds do like not get think in your about right it. hand, your right, right brain. brain. So that your left brain can process without you okay. mindfully yeah. thinking about it. Wow. Um, okay. Chapter six is called the Teddy Effect. And this is all about the aspect of wholeness that allows us to deal with social aspects of discomfort okay. instead of avoiding them. And okay. the Teddy effect refers to Theodore Roosevelt. So he the, – and how, like, a lot of leaders are sociopath no, psychopaths, psychopaths. Mm, mm-hmm. So, like, Teddy Roosevelt, um, <laughs> you might remember from – um, the American the, the American Adventure at Epcot. Yes, he thank established you. Mirror, Mirror Woods with John Muir. Muir, 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 Muir. Um, he went on that. He went on that camping trip. He stole away from his Secret Service for days. 
Oh my god. Which is a terrible thing to do as a president. Yes, it is. So there's no one knew where he was. No. So your likely default position of playing nice might be holding you back from that final 20% of the success you could be enjoying. Strategic use of your dark side, including rule-bending behaviors, dominant, cold, manipulative, self-absorbed kind of actions, um, could help you achieve that last 20% of success. Oh, my God. Uh-huh. Wait, I'm sorry. So throw your coworker under the bus? No. So the three parts of the Teddy effect, Machiavellianism, which is the ends justify the means, mm. narcissism, and psychopathy. And the thing is, is you already engage in these behaviors somewhat. I'm sure we all do. Everybody does. Here's my favorite. Um, they have a list on page Yeah, what's one. an example? 63. When they, I was like, I don't do this. And then when they listed it, I was like, what? You're like, oh, I do this. So the, the subsection of this chapter is called You've Been Naughty. Um, <laughs> Thank you. And so they're saying, don't, don't change your personality. Don't give up apologizing, volunteer work, or holding the door open for other people. Continue to be nice. Great. We are suggesting. Slash their tires in the parking lot. However, that you adapt Machiavelli's advice to be aware of situations and when the best possible outcomes require the use of your inner Machiavelli narcissist or psychopath okay if the teddy effect still feels repellent to you then we would like to take this opportunity to remind you do you already engage in these behaviors to some extent have you ever waited to press start on the dishwasher until your spouse walked into the room so he or she could witness your contribution to the household chores okay tried to charm someone in order to win them over Mm -hmm. delivered a quote spoonful of positives to help pave way for the critique Fantasized about accepting an Academy Award. <laughs> Framed yourself as a victim when recounting an event in a bid to win support and sympathy from your friends. Told a lie. Pressed the elevator button to close the door when you saw someone coming. Yes. We've we've done all or a little yeah, bit of that. Yeah. So we're already engaging in these Machiavelli, narcissist, and psychopathic behaviors on some level. Holy shit. So they're saying embrace them when it calls for it, again, in business, to help you achieve that last bit of success. Fascinating. Chapter 7, The Whole Enchilada. A great case for defensive pessimists. I said, that sounds like me. Mm-hmm. Hope for the best and expect the worst. I said, that is exactly how I was oh, raised. Oh, instead of... Uh, prepare. prepare f- expect. And expect... Okay, yeah. because the saying is hope for the best and prepare, prepare for, for the, the worst. worst. And this is a pessi- a, a defensive pessimist. Hope for the best and expect, expect the, the worst. worst. Aristotle's eudaimonia, that's what he called, right, that state of happiness, shows up here. They talk about the two branches of happiness philosophy, how pleasure and meaning work together, as do novelty and stability. That was a really kind of cool thing. Like they had, there was a reference to study where you tell people, would you rather have pleasure for the next hour or meaning? Would you rather have pleasure or meaning for the next week, for the next month, for the next year, for the the rest of your life? Mm -hmm. And short-term people want pleasure. Long-term people want meaning. Wow. And and same with durability and... um, Novelty and stability. So I want novelty in the now, but over the long course, I want stability. And what's, I mean, what's the point of differentiating these? Well, I love the differentiation, but what, in what context is this important? Just that, that this study shows that we, we naturally embrace both sides. Oh, yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Hindu and Buddhist traditions say that boredom is a precursor to insight and discovery. So, like, the idea of embracing your whole self is not something new. They also do a lot of talk about different cultures and how Asian cultures are more communal and less individual. Mm -hmm. And so their concept of happiness is very different from Western concepts. So this book is – I love this book. I couldn't recommend it enough. You seem like you love – I love this book, too, because it's just, like, letting me love – yeah. All the parts of me and my brain. 
And I have had some real negative thoughts lately. Yeah, some well, real, listen, you know, I've some been real Machiavellian so shits going on over <laughs> here. You. It took me so long to embrace and say that I was like angry. You know, it took me a long time in therapy. And now to have like, I know for me the benefits of acknowledging anger. Yeah. Um, and I have friends who call me and they're like, I'm angry. And I'm like, you know, I love that. And they know that I'm a safe place they can have anger with, right? Yes. And and to be able to go, I'm so glad you're angry. That's such a sign that someone's encroached upon your boundaries. Or just That's- like you never get angry. And guess what? People get angry. People get angry. Oh, wow. Look at you. You're being a full human. Linda Linky hates getting angry. Oh, and so Linda. when she gets a little bit angry, I fucking love I stoke love that it. fire as much as possible. But, yeah, I think I probably like live most would. of my life trying to make her angry just to get angry. That feels right. <laughs> that feels right. So I loved a research-based scientific approach to show that, oh, it, yeah. that it's, it's valuable. Stam. Stam. Um, so Lisa, a great Great job. Thank this, you. This is a, I'm staring at it. It's a thick book. Mm. I know it's got a lot of studies. You love a thick book. Mm-hmm. Um, what did these authors get right? Um, definitely from the practical Patty side of things, yes. practical Paul. Yeah. They uh, brought in research uh, study after study after study and synthesized it. Great. And I love yeah. how they're like, this is how negative emotions are, quote unquote, negative emotions are useful and mm-hmm. this is how positive emotions yeah. can be da- can be your downfall. Did you find it an easy read or like was it storytelling or was it drier? It's a, no, it's an easy read because they're both kind of funny up, upbeat lighthearted dudes. Um right. and so I thought that was great. There is a little bit of story and the and the variety of studies is super fun, right? Like right. that unplanned pregnancy one right. is like you just that's what I love about research, social right. science researchers. What did they get wrong? Well, I wish this would have been formatted in a self-help instead of a business setting. I would right. love to see the difference in right. that. Because right. as it is, and I, it's a bigger market, um, but this is for success and fulfillment. And I think it could really be for fulfillment. So do they success. talk about business a lot? No, but I mean, the you know. There's enough? Their, their, their focus is on negotiating or yeah. when you're working on a team. Right. And those things, I mean, look, when I, regardless of where you are in your self-help journey, you still have a job. <laughs> Yeah. You know, hopefully yeah. you have a job yeah. and you're working with people. So that's helpful. But I think through the lens of self-help, this book would have been incredible as well versus just business. Who's this book perfect for? Um, this book is perfect for anybody who has been told their whole life to not be mad or that they're too angry. Or to think positively. Or to think positively. Stay positive. Or who has been on this like good vibes only train, but Ugh. it feels uh, inauthentic to them on some way and they yeah. don't know how to – articulate that in a way yeah. that that feels, you know, useful. Absolutely. And is there anything from this book that you put into practice? You know, I feel like this book was validation for me, mm. but it was really nice to see, ah, yes, um, it's okay for me to come in with a quote unquote negative attitude mm-hmm. because I actually, it, it helps me in my negotiations. It helps me in this situation. You know right, what I mean? Right, right. Um, so they're really just reframing. Yeah, it was just kind of like, well, I mean, I wasn't going to not be who I am, but it was nice to see that there's scientific research backing up that like when people say just be happy, the way that that upset me so deeply um wasn't just because that wasn't who I that wasn't who I was. Do you yeah, know what I mean? Like yeah. that like to me that goes against your human 
experience and the human it, condition. It does. And before we started this podcast, I when people would be like, just think positive, I'd be like, I know, I know, you're right. And now when people say it to me, I, I like do a quick turnaround and I'm like, let's address this right now. Mm-hmm. That's actually not healthy. Mm-hmm. And I like have a little sidebar, which I'm sure everybody loves. <laughs> And enjoys. Um, and you already assigned me my homework, yeah. which I'll check in on. I will do something. I will make a an complex anal- decision. A, com- a complex decision and then take time away from it in a right brain activity and yeah. then render a decision. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Maybe go to the Cheesecake Factory. Oh, my God. And then do like a crossword puzzle. I can't. I can't. It's too stressful. I can't. All right. Um, so let us know if Robert... Bizwa's Diener mm-hmm. gets back to you with those follow-up questions because yeah, I, I really want to know. And for anyone listening, I want to know how how when you let yourself really just sit in your own quote unquote negative emotions, how does that feel for you? Is that empowering? Is it uncomfortable? Is it uncomfortable? Is it terrifying? Or are you like, fuck this, fuck yeah, <laughs> I'm tapping into like my base nature? Um, let us know. Great job, Lisa. Thanks, man. Everybody, life, life is abundant. Is abundant. Go Help Yourself, a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less, was produced by Misty Stinnett, Lisa Linky, and Matt Sav. Our theme song was also written by Matt Sav. He's amazing. <laughs> do you want to get in touch? You do. Email us at gohelpyourselfpodcast at gmail.com. And you know, you can also find us on the social medias, Instagram at gohelpyourselfpodcast, Twitter at podcast, or check out our website, gohelpyourselfpodcast.com. And if you liked our podcast, please subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes to help other people discover our show. It's really the least you can do. And why don't you tell all of your friends? Bye! Bye.